Good morning, church. If you would go ahead and stand with me this morning as we prepare to read God's Word and turn our minds and thus our hearts towards the Word of God. Um, We will be turning, if you'll turn in your Bibles with me, to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use the Bible in the seat back in front of you. Um, The passage will be found on page 464 of the chair Bibles. And if you are in need of a Bible, feel free to take that Bible home. It is our gift to you. Um, So we'll go ahead and read Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 through 12. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the end of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Thus says the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, as each Sunday we stand before it, and God, we ask that you would give us a heart to humble ourselves before your word, to marvel at your word, to be in amazement at your word, and what it teaches, what it says, the way it instructs us, the way it examines us. Lord, we ask you that your word would be life to us. As Jesus said, the words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. And so we ask for that miracle to happen in us this morning as we hear your word. God, I ask for special assistance this morning to preach accurately, to preach thoroughly, and to, to preach in a way that brings glory to you and that exalts your name and that causes your people to rejoice before you in worship and gladness, Lord. God, I pray for all of my listeners that their ears would be touched by your spirit to receive the words as the words of God. And we thank you for all of this, for the miracles that we're asking for that we know that you are already bringing about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So we are getting really close to the end of our series on the minor prophets. Today we're going to talk about Zechariah. Zechariah is the next to the last book in the Old Testament and therefore the next to the last book in the minor prophets. Zechariah is a little different than some of the others. It is at 14 chapters, the longest book in the minor prophets. And in a few ways, uh, it is somewhat difficult to understand. Um, and therefore, because of the difficulty with which we understand it, it is sometimes, quite often, as a matter of fact, neglected by believers to really take heed to the book. Um, One of the ways it's difficult to understand is because it uses a lot of apocalyptic imagery, similar in the New Testament to the book of Revelation, a lot of symbolism, a lot of images. And there are times when this symbolism isn't clear just looking at it on the surface. And and that intimidates 
new readers who come to the book of Zechariah. It intimidates people who are unfamiliar with biblical genres or biblical timelines or biblical theology. Um, Navigating Zechariah, therefore... Um, is best accomplished with some help. A great study Bible can be uh, just a marvelous help in that. Good commentaries, things like that. Teaching series by trusted teachers on on Zechariah can help. Uh, Zechariah is also difficult to understand because he does not communicate sequential ideas or visions. In other words, one idea doesn't lead into the next. One vision doesn't necessarily lead into what will come next. And a successive successive vision may not necessarily build upon the last vision. The visions that that Zechariah is going to put before us are more like disjointed snapshots. They're, they, they, they show us pictures of coming kingdom realities as well as realities that were contemporary to Zechariah's time. And although they may overlap significantly and often do, they are not necessarily relayed to us off the page in order. So Zechariah prophesied at the same time as Haggai, which we studied last week, and Malachi, which we'll study next week. All three of these guys are classified as post-exilic prophets. That means that they they prophesied after Judah's 70-year exile in Babylon, which we talked about last week. And Zechariah is unique in that God, in his wisdom, placed him between Haggai and Malachi, and it actually kind of serves as a bridge between the two books. Chapters 1 through 8 sound a lot like Haggai, and chapters 9 through 14 sound a lot like Malachi. So it's almost like God is transitioning us from Haggai to Malachi with this book of Zechariah. Zechariah... Uh, another interesting thing about it, you may have never read anything from the book of Zechariah, thought anything about it, but Zechariah is one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. Uh, the, the New Testament writers are often referring back to the book of Zechariah. Matthew, Mark, John, and Paul, and Jesus all quote from the book of Zechariah. They quote him directly. And in many places in the New Testament, there are allusions to this small book of prophecy, 14 chapters. Um, There's a note in the ESV study Bible in its introduction to Zechariah. It says, one estimate finds about 54 passages from Zechariah quoted in about 67 places in the New Testament with a lion's share of these found in the book of Revelation. So obviously there's some similarity to to the writing style of Zechariah and Revelation. And so uh, John uses Zechariah uh, in Revelation a lot. So Let's get to the book. After about 70 years in captivity, as we've mentioned in Babylon, everything about Judah's former glory, the days of of David and Solomon, uh, for example, everything about Judah's former glory is a distant memory. And stories that the people who come back to, to Judah, which is now called Judea, by the way, the people that come back to Judea, uh, the, the stories that they're given, they, they, they weren't born in Judah or Judea. So the stories that they're given are just stories that they were relayed to them by their parents or grandparents. And almost 20 years have passed since their return. And what's the landscape look like? The temple is still in ruins, as we saw last week in Haggai. Uh, uh, the, the, the 
people are oppressed from all kinds of, of different directions. And, and so because of this, they're saying, what's the point? You know, obviously, you know, be, being followers of Yahweh didn't help our father. So they're starting to return to some of their, their, uh, worldly ways before their ungodly ways before the the exile that their fathers walked in. And so Zechariah comes on the scene and he and he announces this great announcement to the people. And it goes like this. He says, "Return to me," says the Lord of hosts, "and I will return to you," says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah's ministry in these 14 chapters is defined by encouragement for God's people. And, and, and he talks a lot about their hopeful prospects for their future, regardless of their current circumstances. God is telling them, he's telling his own people that he lo- still loves them and that he will receive them regardless of their father's rebellion against him. But they're returning to God is now put forth to them as a matter of the heart and not just a returning to their prior religious practices and ceremonies. It was a discouraging time, as I already mentioned, for Judea. The people were harassed by localized enemies. If you want to see a great detail of that, you can read the book of Nehemiah. Darius, King Darius of Persia, was still in charge. Uh, These guys were no longer a sovereign nation under their own king. And Darius was taxing them heavily to fund a war that he had started with the Egyptians. And so many had just completely forgotten God and they were just trying to get by, just trying to make a living. And so God comes to to, uh, Zechariah in chapter 1 and he gives him a series of eight what what Zechariah calls night visions, probably dreams, a, a communication that God gives him in the night. And, and they, it, these visions concern their future. And in these visions, God assures his people. I wish we had time to detail each and every vision. They're powerful, but, but just let me give you an overview. In these visions, God assures the people that he's with them, that he's watching them, that he's not done with them, that he will return to them and prosper them, that he will protect them, and that mostly that he has not forgotten them and he still loves them. And this is the main emphasis of the book of Zechariah. In these six chapters, chapters one through six, where these visions are being laid out, God is trying to tell his people, hey, I am still with you. I still want you. As we've already stated, there's overlap between Judea's situation in Zechariah's time and the age in which you and I live. There are also implications for the future of all of us, all of the people of God in these visions as well. And these dreams include beautiful depictions of God's love for us, his protection of us, the justice that he plans on bringing about, how he will supply power to us to live, pictures of his punishment of wickedness and his removal of it completely from his people's midst and of his ultimate deliverance of them. All this is packed in those those night visions that Zechariah has. And because of this overlap, uh, it's something unique happens when we, in our day, read the book of Zechariah. Something happens that, that we find that, that the scripture that, that was written to people in the 6th century BC applies to us. And that, you may be dead to that fact, but that is a miracle. 
And and Paul, recognizing that fact, wrote to his young protege, Timothy, and he said, all Scripture, everybody say all Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What's he saying? You don't have Zechariah. You don't have all Scripture. Without all Scripture, you can't be complete. That's what he's saying. It was written for your purpose. And though it was written to a people in the 6th century B.C. and it addressed real-world concerns and challenges for them, it still speaks comforting promises to us as well if we have ears to hear what it tells us about God's love for us today. So in Christ... I want you to think about this. Sometimes we, we separate people by times they live in, geographical locations, the, the place in the covenant that they occupied. But I want you to know that in Christ, we are as much the people of God today as the returning Jews were in their time. In fact, Peter, interestingly enough, in his letter calls us exiles. Us! He calls us exiles. Paul goes on to say that our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. So what what they're saying by calling us exiles, telling us our citizenship is in heaven, is to tell us, to remind us, to encourage us that this world is not our ultimate homeland. And we need to understand that God is in control even at times it seems that He is not. But it's really important. It's really important as we read the book of Zechariah, as we read the entire Bible, as a matter of fact, to understand not only that God is in control, but how God is in control. And that's the next next thing, the next major point that Zechariah makes clear for us. And he begins this process kind of subtly, and he progresses to vivid depictions of our salvation. What do I mean by that? The, the Zechariah's uh, book is like a telescope that zooms in on the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And it keeps pointing to him in, in, in ways that are somewhat unique to Zechariah. It keeps pointing to him as the way, the how God is going to make everything okay. And so Christ in Zechariah becomes our hope and the hope of all people. See, Zechariah is not satisfied to talk about temporal solutions to eternal problems, but by the Spirit, he makes God's eternal solution clear to us. And it it begins in the last half of chapter 6. What happens is, if you you look, in fact, everybody turn to Zechariah chapter 6. I want you to, and just keep your finger in Zechariah for the rest of the message. I'm going to be having you look at a lot of stuff here. In the last half of chapter 6, God commands certain exiles coming back to, the, to, uh, to Judea to make a crown out of precious metals, gold and silver. And, and it, he says to take that crown and set it upon the head of Joshua. Joshua is currently serving as the high priest of God's people. Now look at this in, in verse 12. I want you to see this. It says, and say to him, say to Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch 
For he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now remember Haggai last week, the whole deal was about, hey, it's time to rebuild the temple. Well, this is referring to that. God is saying to the audience that is hearing this message for the first time so long ago, in Zechariah's time, that he is going to empower Joshua the high priest to see the work of rebuilding the temple through. He is going to empower him so that he sees it completed. He's going to be anointed and empowered to complete the work. So there's the historical context. But don't shut the book yet. Look at that verse again. And take special note of the title, The Branch. It's a very significant title. If you go back in your Bible, you'll see in Isaiah and in Jeremiah that both of them use this term to denote a branch that would grow out of the house of David that had been cut down when the people went into exile. A branch would grow out of this of the house of David and it would become the king of his people. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Messiah. This man, the branch. And look at verse 13 now. It is he, the branch, who shall build the temple of the Lord and he, and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be there, shall be between them both. Now, there's a problem here. And if you're not a first century or previous BC Jew, raise your hand if you are. Okay, I don't see any. If you're not a person under that description, there's a problem here and you may have missed it. So God in this passage has crowned a priest and given him royal honor to serve as a king. Why is that a problem? Because the law states that priests are only to come from the Jewish tribe of Levi. And only, more specifically, through the, through the direct descent, the line of Aaron. Kings, however, come through the, the tribe of Judah. And, and more specifically, through the line of David. And if you were a Jew from that time period, this would have been a major problem as you're reading this. How is God going to bring this about? To put a priest on the throne as king. Well, I want you to see this morning that God is showing his people a time when the offices of priest and the office of king will be merged. And the same one who intercedes and makes atonement for his people after, as a priest after the order of Melchizedek will also be the one who rules and reigns over them with righteousness and justice as the son of David. The same one will occupy the throne. As Joshua would be empowered to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, Messiah is going to come. And, and would not only build a temple for God, but he would be the very embodiment of that temple. Save your place in Zechariah. Everybody turn to John chapter 2. Jesus, the great temple builder is what we're looking at. John chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 13. The Bible says the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords softly and tenderly. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. I always have to say this when I read this passage. Many of us have pictures of Jesus in our homes where he's holding lambs or praying to the Father. No one has a picture of Jesus with a whip driving people out of the temple. And if you're an artist, I would commission you to make one, and I would put it in my house. So... Verse 16 says, And he told those who sold pigeons, uh, who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Verse 17, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, They're horrified at the scene that Jesus had just, this public spectacle Jesus has just made. And the Jews say to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, incredulously I might add, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. Verse 21 is very important, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And on a cross... 600 years later, after Zechariah had written, God's temple, the embodiment, the perfect embodiment of God's temple would once again be destroyed. But see, God would anoint a new temple rebuilder who would restore what was being destroyed. And the glory of the latter, as we read in Haggai, would be greater than the glory of the former because Christ would be raised in power, glorified forevermore. And God would raise him up and give him a name that is above every name so that every knee should bow, every tongue confess to to the glory of God, everything. And he would become our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is Jesus, the temple. This is Jesus, the, the, the priest king who reigns forever. But Zechariah is not done depicting the Messiah for us. And the text that Gabe read to us this morning, Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, if you've been in church at all, raised in church or, or just been a believer for a few years, many of you will recognize this as a prediction of Christ entering Jerusalem Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, the week before his crucifixion. And Matthew quotes this verse from Zechariah directly, as does John. But what does this verse tell the original readers about the nature of the Messiah? What are the people who are anticipating the coming of the Messiah, what are they supposed to be looking for? Well, first of all, we know that he would be one who would be king. He would be one with tremendous authority. Your king is coming to you, O Zion. 
And we've already established his kingship. But when Jesus showed up, he would leave no doubt to anybody watching that he was in charge. No doubt would be given. Why? He would command the very weather. He would speak to uh, bodies who were sick and they would be healed. He would even speak to bodies who were dead and they would be raised. He would command unclean spirits with authority. He would teach with authority, unlike their religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. But Jesus would be more than just another charismatic leader. He would also, as Zechariah prophesies here, he would bring salvation with him. And it would be a salvation that's described in the verses that follow. He would rescue the perishing and give hope to the hopeless. Those who believe in him would have eternal life granted to them. Look at the next verses again. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. Look at this. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. He's saying there that I am going to bring an end to conflict against my people. There will be no more wars against my people. And Zechariah says his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The river there is the Jordan. So from the seat of his power in Israel to all the earth, he will rule. What did Jesus say before he ascended to the Father? All authority, where? In heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's going to bring it into war. And, and he will bring peace. Right now, he brings an end to the war that is most important to us, our, our spiritual war, our conflict with God, because we're rebels to God. He brings peace between us and God. But there is a day coming in the future where Jesus will bring ultimate peace and war will cease forever. Hostility, violence, anger will cease forever. Verse 11 uh, of chapter 9, As for you also... He's getting specific now. Listen to this wording. And imagine what he's describing here. Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. He's saying some kind of prisoners are going to go free, but the cost of their freedom will be blood. Listen to what he says in verse 12. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Man, I love that. I love that. Prisoners of hope. Today I declare to you that I will restore to you double. Salvation is going to be accomplished through blood. People are going to go free. And from this point forward, they will be captivated by hope and not by fear. What a promise. What a promise. But in Zechariah's description, we're also told that he will come humbly. Kings do not ride burrows. Kings don't ride donkeys. Kings ride stallions who are stomping the ground and and snorting out fire. that's That's the way kings want to be imaged, but not this king. He's going to come in meekness. And yet in that meekness, he is going to defeat eternal enemies and bring salvation to all who believe. Zechariah also shows clearly, vividly, he shows the Messiah as what John chapter 10, Jesus described himself as. He shows the Messiah as a good shepherd. God commands Zechariah to become a shepherd of a flock 
that is doomed to be slaughtered in chapter 11. He does, Zechariah obeys, he does what God tells him to, he takes over this this flock that is doomed to be slaughtered, and he serves well as a shepherd. And yet eventually, he becomes impatient with the sheep traders. And he resigns, and he asks for his wages. Now watch this. Chapter 11, everybody turn there. Zechariah 11, verse 12, he says, And then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages. Remember, he served as a shepherd of a flock that was doomed to be slaughtered. If it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Does that amount ring a bell for anybody? 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord or into the temple to the potter. Of course you remember that. Jesus was betrayed by Judas for the lordly price of 30 pieces of silver. The price of Jesus was set by his own people. But when Judas regretted his act of what he had done, what did he do? Do you remember? Matthew 27, 5 says, And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple. What did Zechariah do? He threw the silver into the temple. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. And even more than that, do you remember what the, happened uh, with, the, with the discarded money once the chief priests got it back? When they collected it out of the temple, look at this, verse 26 of Matthew 27. Or verse 6, rather, of Matthew 27. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful for us to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. Watch. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. What did God tell, uh, tell Zechariah to do with the silver? Throw it to the potters. He threw it into the temple and it went to the potters. I want to ask you a question, because this is important. This is one of the most important elements of Christianity and its truthfulness, its veracity in the world today. Do you see God's sovereign hand both in the prediction of these events and also in the orchestration and execution of them? Can you see that God was doing something? God was preparing and verifying at the same time a story that would be very important to you. Do you see that? But Zechariah isn't even done with his motif of the good shepherd. Go to Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6, where he says, now listen, he's talking about the good shepherd. And he says, if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. And then verse 7, God speaks, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. So we have wounds on the back of the good shepherd. Wounds he received in the house of his friends. And I ask you to remember, wasn't Jesus wounded among his own people? He was a Jew. He came to the Jews who went to the bloodthirsty Romans and demanded that they put him to death. John chapter 1 says he came to his own, 
but his own did not receive him. It was the house of his friends where he received the wounds on his back. And yet, although there's been this argument over whose fault was it that Jesus died, was it the Jews' fault or was it the Romans' fault, here's the, the thing that we have to remember. It was God who crushed him. It was God who put him to death. It was the will of the Father, the Bible says in, in Isaiah chapter 53, to crush him. It was the Father who crushed the Son on the cross. It was he who, in the words of Zechariah, took up the sword against his own shepherd, the one who stood by his side, and he did so to punish our sin. Matthew 26, 31. Jesus is about to be arrested and he says to his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night. Now watch this, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus is quoting Zechariah here, applying this, this messianic uh, text to himself. And we know what happened. The disciples fled. Peter even denied that he knew the Lord three times, just as Jesus had predicted. But all of this, all of this is not to paint a picture of some weak Messiah that was come. Meekness is not weakness. But it can often be concealed as, it it can be a concealed strength for a time. It can be covered over and look like weakness But it was through this meekness and not through military might as his disciples anticipated that Christ would become the savior of the world. So many will look at the cross and laugh. Say, some savior you got there, Christians. Your savior died on a cross. To which Paul would reply, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Though some people may scoff at this idea of a crucified man being regarded as king of kings and lord of lords, in that cross, that bloody cross, we see the wisdom of God. We see Jesus as the one who through death conquered the one who had the power of death and kept all of us in slavery, lifelong fear of death. And we see him raised, we see him exalted, we see him forevermore reigning. Zechariah beautifully portrays Jesus as the one who, though he was pierced with nails and with a spear, he holds the key to our redemption. Flip over again, Zechariah 12. I appreciate you staying with me. Zechariah 12, and we need to see this. We're going to look at verse 10. And I will pour out, verse 10 tells us, on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, watch this, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Let's break that down. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. What God is picturing for his people that he loves and says that he will return to, he's picturing a time when instead of trying and failing to keep the law, the people of God will be granted grace that will lead them to make pleas for mercy. 
Some people here in this room right now think that we plea for mercy and we get grace. You've got it all backwards. God grants grace so that we can plead for mercy. If it wasn't for him making the first step, none of you would ever cry out for mercy. None of us would. But because he approached us first, granting eternal grace, then we turn to him and we say, I need mercy. I need mercy. The grace granted and the impulse to cry for mercy won't be without a basis. In other words, we don't just sit around thinking about God and how nice he is and the beautiful world he created and think, I need God. We don't do that. Our, our grace granted and this impulse to cry out for mercy is on the basis of seeing Jesus. This grace comes about as we look on Jesus, as we look on me, as the Bible says, on him whom they've pierced. We see Christ. Seeing him in all of his mercy, all of his compassion for us sinners, we cry out to him. What a vivid depiction, by the way, this piercing is of a crucified man. You got to understand, this was written 200 years before anybody had ever seen a crucifixion. The Persians invented it about 200 years later. It wouldn't be invented for another 200 years, but, but Zechariah is saying to the Jews that you will recognize your Messiah as one who would be pierced. That was a great clue for them, wasn't it? Notice also that God says, they will look on me. He puts this in the first person when he communicates it. He says that they would that they would look on him, that they would look on me, the one that they would crucify, though he might seem to all outside observers to be just merely a man, would in fact truly be God. And those appointed for salvation would mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. What is he saying? That they would realize in Isaiah's words from Isaiah chapter 53 that he was wounded for their transgressions, that he was bruised for their iniquities. And that they would see in that by the power of the Holy Spirit, by, by the grace that would be granted, they would see that he was dying in their place to make peace with God. But they aren't the only ones who would weep. Those who reject him may not weep over him now. But one day, oh, they're going to weep. One day they will weep as they realize all that they have lost in casting Christ aside. So Zechariah, in closing, is a great book. has a lot to say to us today. It should not by us be merely ignored in favor of Old Testament Bible stories and New Testament theology. Just think about all the times the New Testament writers point to it and you'll see the power that it has to validate the teachings about Christ. We learn several things from the book of Zechariah. We learn from it that God is absolutely in control. Some of you need to hear that today. You're going through all kinds of trials and trouble and tribulation and frustration and unsatisfaction. And I want you to know that the scripture is telling you through, through Zechariah that God is in control. 
God has not abandoned his people. He will guard them. He will redeem them. The future he has planned for you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is bright. It's hopeful. And the best part, it is absolutely guaranteed by one who cannot lie. But most of all, (coughs) we learn that the promises of God come to us through only one channel. (coughs) And that channel is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no hope for you outside of the Lord Jesus. God will have mercy on you because of Jesus. He will extend grace to you because of Jesus. He will bless you and fulfill his promises through Jesus. But do not deceive yourself to think that there is any other way to the best God has except through the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the basis of everything good Zechariah and all other 65 books of the Bible tell us. And more specifically, it isn't just through Jesus, through having a simplistic view of believing in Jesus, but it is through understanding that, that, that our blessing comes through Jesus' obedient suffering for us. We are blessed because he was cursed. He became poor because, so that we could become rich, is how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians. And mostly I want you to know this about God. As as we've looked at all these messianic prophecies, we learn through Zechariah's spot-on accuracy in messianic predictions that Jesus, hear me on this, Jesus was not a historical accident. Jesus was not God's rushed plan B because Adam and Eve blew it. Jesus was more than that. He wasn't just God's afterthought. Jesus, listen, from, from the beginning, Jesus was always God's first and greatest plan before the foundations of the world were even laid. Jesus was, Jesus was to be the, God's plan. He was to be the one that would exalt the Father, that would, that would be glorified through death and resurrection. He was always God's plan. And Zechariah goes a long way to proving that to us. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that you weren't just left to figure it out or hope that God would be merciful to you, but God himself made the way so that he could be merciful to you. Without him, you are lost. Without him, you are not only lost, you are hopeless. You have no hope in this life or in the one to follow without the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would like to celebrate that fact with you this morning. Anybody with me? Any believers in the house today that want to celebrate the death and resurrection and ascension and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you are, stand with me. We are going to come to the table of the Lord. And what Zechariah looked forward to, we're going to look back to. And we're going to say, we're on this side. We're on the right side of this this bit of historical information. And Jesus isn't done What he has begun through Jesus, he will complete at the last day. He will raise us 
these mortal decaying bodies. He will raise them to be glorified bodies like himself. He will, death will be ended. War will be ended. Sin and sickness will be ended. And Jesus will reign forever as, as the one priest king who has been crowned for all of us. And I say to that, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So I'm going to invite you to come to the table, just receive the elements, and then we'll go back to the table, uh, to your chairs rather, and we'll, we'll take them together so you can go ahead and come on. If you're not a believer this morning, I just want to encourage you not to take these elements. They mean nothing to you. Um, the Bible actually even gives warnings to those who would partake without discerning the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, this is not time. But if you uh, would like to participate um, and and talk to us about, you know, the, the condition of your soul, we would love to talk to you about that and help you walk through to know that you are uh, a believer in Christ and that you are part of his body. We would love to, to assist you in that. The Apostle Paul tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Like the Lord Jesus, can we give thanks for his broken body today? Lord Jesus, we thank you that wounds were placed upon your back in the house of your friends, so that we who were your enemies could become your friends, O oh God. And we thank you, Lord, that for a bunch of sinners like us, those who were worthy of nothing more than condemnation and hell, you reached out and you rescued us. You came looking for us. You came to us through the cross and you brought us near to God. And for that, we give you thanks, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This blood is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In similar manner, let's give thanks. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the blood of your covenant that we read about in Zechariah today. We thank you that your blood wasn't a flippant handshake. It wasn't a, God, just something that we had to hope and wish on. But you sealed your covenant with us with the blood of your own son. And we thank you for that. The blood that cleanses us, that makes us holy and acceptable and spotless before you, Lord. We thank you for that. And may it, we be eternally grateful for what you have done on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's take the cup together. And now if you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to pronounce a benediction over you and send you on your way in peace. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You are dismissed.